CD7 Magrat was halfway down the road to the square when the adrenaline wore off and her past life caught up with her. She looked down at the armour and the horse and thought, I'm out of my mind. It was that bloody letter and I was frightened. I thought I'd show everyone what I'm made of and now they'll probably find out I'm made of lots of tubes and green-purple wobbly bits. I was just lucky with those elves and I didn't think. As soon as I think I get things wrong. I don't think I'll be that lucky again. Luck. She thought wistfully of her bags of charms and talismans at the bottom of the river. They'd never really worked if her life was anything to go by, but maybe, it was a horrible thought, maybe they'd just stopped it getting worse. There were hardly any lights in the town, and a lot of the houses had their shutters up. The horses' hooves clattered loudly on the cobbles. Magrat peered into the shadows. Once they'd just been shadows. Now they could be gateways to anything. Clouds were pressing in from the hub. Magrat shivered. This was something she'd never seen before. It was true night. Night had fallen in Lancre, and it was an old night. It was not the simple absence of day patrolled by the moon and stars, but an extension of something that had existed long before there was any light to define it by absence. It was unfolding itself from under tree roots and inside stones, crawling back across the land. Magrat's sack of what she considered to be essential props might be at the bottom of the river, but she had been a witch for more than ten years, and she could feel the terror in the air. People remember badly, but societies remember well. The swarm remembers, encoding the information to slip it past the senses of the mind, passing it on from grandmother to grandchild in little bits of nonsense they won't bother to forget. Sometimes the truth keeps itself alive in devious ways despite the best efforts of the official keepers of information. Ancient fragments chimed together now in Magrat's head. Up the airy mountain, down the rushy glen, from ghosties and bogles and long-leggedy beasties. My mother said I never should. We dare not go a-hunting for fear and things that go bump, play with the fairies in the wood. Magrat sat on the horse she didn't trust and gripped the sword she didn't know how to use while the ciphers crept out of memory and climbed into a shape. They steal cattle and babbies, they steal milk, they love music and steal away musicians. In fact, they steal everything. We'll never be as free as them, as beautiful as them, as clever as them, as light as them. We are animals. Chilly wind soughed in the forest beyond the town. It had always been a pleasant forest to walk in at nights, but now, she knew, it would not be so again. The trees would have eyes. There would be distant laughter in the wind. What they take is everything... Magrat spurred the horse into a walk. Somewhere in the town a door slammed shut. And what they give you is fear. There was the sound of hammering from across the street. A man was nailing something on his door. He glanced around in terror, saw Magrat and darted inside. What he had been nailing on the door was a horseshoe. Magrat tied the horse firmly to a tree and slid off its back. There was no reply to her knocking. Who was it who lived here? Carter the Weaver, wasn't it? Or Weaver the Baker? "'Open up, man! It's me, Magrat Garlic!' There was something white beside the doorstep. It turned out to be a bowl of cream. Again, Magrat thought of the cat Grebo, smelly, unreliable, cruel and vindictive, but who purred nicely and had a bowl of milk every night. "'Come on, open up!' After a while, the bolt slid back and an eye was applied to a very narrow crack. "'Yes? You're Carter the Baker, aren't you?' I'm Weaver the Thatcher. And you know who I am? Miss Garlic? Come on, let me in. Are you alone, miss? Yes. The crack widened to a Magrat width. There was one candle alight in the room. Weaver backed away from Magrat until he was leaning awkwardly over the table. Magrat peered around him. The rest of the Weaver family were hiding under the table. Four pairs of frightened eyes peered up at Magrat. What's going on? she said. Er... Uh, said Weaver. Didn't recognise you in your flying hat, miss. I thought you were doing the entertainment. What's happened? Where is everyone? Where is my going-to-be husband? Er, uh, yes, it was probably the helmet. That's what Magrat decided afterwards. There are certain items, such as swords and wizard's hats and crowns and rings, which pick up something of the nature of their owners. Queen Inchi had probably never sewn a tapestry in her life and undoubtedly had a temper shorter than a wet cowpat. The shortest unit of time in the multiverse 
is the New York second, defined as the period of time between the traffic lights turning green and the cab behind you honking. It was better to think that something of her had rubbed off on the helmet and was being transmitted to Magrat like some kind of royal scalp disease. It was better to let Unchi take over. She grabbed Weaver by his collar. If you say er one more time, she said, I'll chop your ears off. Er, uh, ah, I mean, er, uh, Miss, um, it's the Lords and Ladies, Miss. It really is the elves. Miss, said Weaver, his eyes full of pleading, don't say it. We heard them go down the street, dozens of them, and they've stolen old Thatcher's cow and Skindle's goat, and they broke down the door of... Why'd you put a bowl of milk out? Magrat demanded. Weaver's mouth opened and shut a few times. Then he managed, You see, my Eva said her granny always put a bowl of milk out for them to keep them happy. I see, said Magrat icily. And the king? The king, miss, said Weaver, buying time. The king, said Magrat. Short man, runny eyes, ears that stick out a bit, unlike other ears in this vicinity, very shortly. Weaver's fingers wove around one another like tormented snakes. Well, well, well... He caught the look on Magrat's face and sagged. "'We done the play,' he said. "'I told them, let's do the stick and bucket dance instead. "'But they were set on this play, and it all started all right, "'and then and, and, and then suddenly they were there, hundreds of them. "'Everyone was running, and someone bashed into me, "'and I, I rolled into the stream, and then there was all this noise, "'and I saw Jason Ogg hitting four elves with the first thing he could get hold of. "'Another elf?' Right, and then I found Eva and the kids, and then lots of people were running like hell for home, and there were these gentry on horseback, and I could hear them laughing, and we got home, and Eva said to put a horseshoe on the door, and what about the king? Dunno, miss, last I remember he was laughing at Thatcher in his straw wig. And Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax, what happened to them? Dunno, miss, don't remember seeing them, but there was people running everywhere. And where was all this? Myth? Where did it happen? said Magrat, trying to speak slowly and distinctly. Up at the dancers, Myth. You know, them old stones. Magrat let him go. Oh, yes, she said. Don't tell Magrat. Magrat's not to know about this sort of thing. The dancers, right? It wasn't us, Myth. It was only make-believe. <laughs> she unbolted the door again. Where are you going, Myth? said Weaver, who was not a competitor in the all-Lancre uptake stakes. Where do you think? But, miss, you can't take iron. Magrat slammed the door. Then she kicked the bowl of milk so hard that it sprayed across the street. Jason Ogg crawled cautiously through the dripping bracken. There was a figure a few feet away. He hefted the stone in his hand. Jason? Is that you, Weaver? No, it's me, Taylor. Where's everyone else? Tinker and Baker found Carpenter just now. Have you seen Weaver? No, but I saw Carter and Thatcher. Mist curled up as the rain drummed into the warm earth. The seven surviving Morris men crawled under a dripping bush. There's going to be hell to pay in the morning, moaned Carter. When she finds us, we're done for. We'll be right if we can find some iron, said Jason. Iron don't have no effect on her. She'll tan our hides for us. Carter clutched his knees to his chest in terror. Oh, Mistress Weatherwax! Thatcher jabbed him in the ribs. Water cascaded off the leaves above them and funneled down every neck. Don't be so daft. You saw them things. What are you worrying about that old baggage for? She'll tan our eyes for us right enough. Twas all our fault, she'll say. I just hope she gets a chance, muttered Tinker. We are, said Thatcher, between a rock and a yard place. No, we ain't, sobbed Carter. I've been there. That's the gorge just above Badass. We ain't there. I wish we was there. We're under this bush. And they'll be looking for us. And so shall she. What happened when we was doing the entertain? Carpenter began. I ain't asking that question right now, said Jason. The question I'm asking right now is, how do we get home tonight? She'll be waiting for us, Carter wailed. There was a tinkle in the darkness. What have you got there, said Jason. It's the prop sack, said Carter. You said as how it was my job to look after the prop sack. You dragged that all the way down here? I ain't about to get into more trouble because of losing the prop sack. Carter started to shiver. If we gets back home, said Jason, I'm going to talk to our mam about getting you some of these new dried frog pills. 
He pulled the sack towards him and undid the top. There's our bells in here, he said, and the sticks. And who told you to pack the accordion? Well, I thought we might want to do the stick and... No one's ever to do the stick and bucket. There was a laugh away on the rain-soaked hill and a crackling in the bracken. Jason suddenly felt the focus of attention. They're out there, said Carter. And we ain't got any weapons, said Tinker. A set of heavy brass bells hit him in the chest. Shut up, said Jason, and put your bells on. Carter, they're waiting for us. I'll say this just once, said Jason. After tonight, no one's ever to talk about the stick and bucket dance ever again. All right. The Lancre Morris men faced one another, rain plastering their clothes to their bodies. Carter, tears of terror mingling with makeup and the rain, squeezed the accordion. There was the long drawn out chord that by law must precede all folk music to give bystanders time to get away. Jason held up his hand and counted his fingers. One, two, his forehead wrinkled. One, two, three, four, hissed Tinker. Four, said Jason. Dance, lads. Six heavy ash sticks clashed in midair. One, two, forward. One, back, spin. Slowly, as the leaky strains of Mrs. Widgery's lodger wound around the mist, the dancers leapt and squelched their way slowly through the night. Two, back, jump. The sticks clashed again. They're watching us, panted Taylor as he bounced past Jason. I can see him. One, two. They won't do nothing till the music stops. Back, two, spin. They loves music. Forward, hop, turn. One and six. Beetle crushers, hop, back, spin. They're coming out of the bracken, shouted Carpenter as the sticks met again. I see them. Two, three, forward, turn. Carter, back, spin. You do a double. Two, back, wandering Angus down the middle. I'm losing it, Jason. Play! Two, three, spin. They're all around us. Dance! They're watching us. They're closing in. Spin, back, jump. We're nearly at the road. Jason! Remember when, three, turn, we won the cop against O'Hulan casuals? Spin! The sticks met with a thump of wood against wood. Clods of earth were kicked into the night. Jason, you don't mean... Back, two, do it! Carter's getting... One, two... Out of wind. Two, spin... The accordion's melting, Jason, sobbed Carter. One, two, forward, bean setting. The accordion wheezed. The elves pressed in. Out of the corner of his eye, Jason saw a dozen grinning, fascinated faces. Jason! One, two, Carter into the middle. One, two, spin. Seven pairs of boots thudded down. Jason! One, two, spin. Ready? One, two, back, back. One, two, turn, Kill and back one, two. The inn was a wreck. The elves had stripped it of everything edible and rolled out every barrel, although a couple of rogue cheeses in the cellar had put up quite a fight. The table had collapsed. Lobster claws and candlesticks lay among the ruined meal. Nothing moved. Then someone sneezed and some soot fell into the empty grate, followed by Nanny Og and eventually by the small, black and irate figure of Casanunda. Yuck! said Nanny, looking around the debris. This really is the pips. You should have let me fight them. Oh, there were too many of them, my lad. Casanunda threw his sword on the floor in disgust. We were just getting to know one another properly and fifty elves burst into the place. Damn! This kind of thing happens to me all the time. That's the best thing about black. It doesn't show the soot, said Nanny Og vaguely, dusting herself off. They managed it then, Esme was right. Wonder where she is. Oh well, come on. Where are we going? said the dwarf. Down to my cottage. Ah, to get my broomstick, said Nanny Og firmly. I ain't having the Queen of the Fairies ruling my children, so we'd better get some help. This has gone too far. We could go up into the mountains, said Casanunda, as they crept down the stairs. There's thousands of dwarfs up there. No, said Nanny Og. Esme won't thank me for this, but I'm the one who has to wave the bag of sweets when she overreaches herself. And I'm thinking about someone who really hates the Queen. You won't find anyone who hates her worse than dwarfs do, said Casanunda. Oh, you will, said Nanny Og, if you knows where to look.
The elves had been into Nanny Og's cottage, too. There weren't two pieces of furniture left whole. "'What they don't take this smash,' said Nanny Og. She stirred the debris with her foot. Glass tinkled. "'That vase was a present from Esme,' she said to the unfeeling world in general. "'Never liked it much.' "'Why did they do it?' said Casanunda, looking around. "'Oh, they smashed the world if they thought it would make a pretty noise,' said Nanny. She stepped outside again and felt around under the eaves of the low-thatched roof and pulled out her broomstick with a small grunt of triumph. "'I always shove it up there,' she said, "'otherwise the kids nick it and go joy-riding.' "'You ride behind me, and I say this against my better judgment.' Casanunda shuddered. Dwarves are generally scared of heights, since they don't often have the opportunity to get used to them. Nanny scratched her chin, making a sandpapery sound. "'And we'll need a crowbar,' she said. "'There'll be one in Jason's forge. Up on me, lad!' "'I really wasn't expecting this,' said Casanunda, feeling his way onto the broomstick with his eyes shut. "'I was looking forward to a convivial evening, just me and you.' "'It is just me and you.' "'Yes, but I hadn't assumed there'd be a broomstick involved.' The stick left the ground slowly. Casanunda clung miserably to the bristles. "'Where are we going?' he said weakly. "'Place I know, up in the hills,' said Nanny. "'Ages since I've been there. "'Esme won't go near it, and Magrat's too young to be tall. "'I used to go there a lot, though, when I was a girl. "'Girls used to go up there if they wanted to get... "'Oh, bugger! What? "'Thought I saw something fly across the moon, "'and I'm damn sure it wasn't Esme.' "'Casanunda tried to look around while keeping his eyes shut. "'Elves can't fly,' he muttered. "'That's all you know,' said Nanny. "'They ride yarrow stalks.' "'Yarrow stalks? Yep. Tried it myself once. "'You can get some lift out of them, but it plays merry hell with the gussets. "'Give me a nice bundle of bristles every time. "'Anyway,' she nudged Casanunda. "'You should be right at home on one of these. "'Magrat says a broomstick is one of them sexual metaphor things. "'Although this is just a fallacy.' "'Casanunda had opened one eye just long enough to see a rooftop drift silently below him. "'He felt sick.' "'The difference being,' said Nanny Og, "'that a broomstick stays up longer, "'and you can use it to keep the house clean, "'which is more than you can save... Uh, <clears throat> "'Are you all right?' "'I really don't like this at all, Mrs Og. "'Just try to cheer you up, Mr Casanunda.' "'Cheer I like, Mrs Og,' said the dwarf, "'but can we avoid the... <clears throat> up?' "'Soon be down. "'That I like.' "'Nanny Og's boots scraped along the hard-packed mud "'of the smithy's yard.' "'I'll leave the magic running, won't be a mo,' she said, ignoring the dwarf's bleat for help. She hopped off the stick and disappeared through the back door. The elves hadn't been there, at least. Too much iron. She pulled a crowbar from the tool bench and hurried out again. "'You can hold this,' she said to Casanunda. She hesitated. "'Can't have too much luck, can we?' she said, and scurried back into the forge. This time she was out again much faster, slipping something into her pocket. "'Ready?' she said. "'No. Then let's go, and keep a look out.' "'With your eyes open?' "'I'm looking for elves,' said Casanunda, as the stick rose into the moonlight. "'Could be. It wasn't Esme, and the only other one ever flying around here is Mr Ixolite the Banshee, "'and he's very good about slipping us a note under the door when he's going to be about. "'For air traffic control, see?' "'Most of the town was dark. "'The moonlight made a black and silver checkerwork across the country. "'After a while, Casanunda began to feel better about things.' The motion of the broomstick was actually quite soothing. "'Carried lots of passengers, have you?' he said. "'On and off, yes,' said Nanny. Casanunda appeared to be thinking about things, and then he said in a voice dripping with scientific inquiry, "'Tell me, has anyone ever tried to make... "'No,' said Nanny Og firmly. "'You'd fall off.' "'You don't know what I was going to ask.' "'Bet you half a dollar.' They flew in silence for a couple of minutes, and then Casanunda tapped Nanny Og on the shoulder. Elves at three o'clock. That's all right, then. That's hours away. I mean, they're over there. Nanny squinted at the stars. Something ragged moved across the night. Oh, blast. Can't you outfly them? Nope. They can put a girdle round the world in forty minutes. Why, it's not that fat, said Casanunda, who was feeling in the mood for a handful of dried frog pills. "'I mean, they're fast. We can't outrun them even if we lost some weight.' "'I think I'm losing a tiny bit,' said Casanunda, as the broomstick dived towards the trees. 
Leaves scraped on Nanny Og's boots. Moonlight glinted briefly off ash-blonde hair away to her left. Bugger, bugger, bugger. Three elves were keeping station with the broomstick. That was the thing about elves. They chased you till you dropped, until your blood was curdling with dread. If a dwarf wanted you dead, on the other hand, they'd simply cut you in half with an axe first chance they got. But that was because dwarfs were a lot nicer than elves. They're gaining on us, said Casanunda. Got the crowbar? Yes. Right. The broomstick zigzagged over the silent forest. One of the elves drew its sword and swung down, knocked them down into the trees, leave them alive as long as possible. The broomstick went into reverse. Nanny Og's head and legs went forward so that partly she was sitting on her hands, but mainly she was sitting on nothing. The elf swooped towards her, laughing. Casanunda stuck out the crowbar. There was a sound very like... The broomstick jerked ahead again, dumping Nanny Og in Casanunda's lap. Sorry! Don't mention it. Uh, In fact, uh, do it again, if you like. Get him, did you? Took his breath away. Good. Where's the others? Can't see them. Casanunda grinned madly. We showed them, eh? Something went zip and stuck into Nanny Og's hat. They know we've got iron, she said. They won't come close again. They don't need to, she added bitterly. The broomstick swerved around a tree and ploughed through some bracken. Then it swung out onto an overgrown path. They aren't following us any more, said Casanunda after a while. We frightened them off, yes. Not us. They're nervy of going close to the long man. It's not their turf. Look at the state of this path. There's trees growing in it now. When I was a girl, you wouldn't find a blade of grass growing on the path. She smiled at a distant memory. Very popular place on a summer night, the long man was. There was a change in the texture of the forest now. It was old even by the standards of Lancre forestry. Beards of moss hung from gnarled low branches. Ancient leaves crackled underfoot as the witch and the dwarf flew between the trees. Something heard them and crashed away through the thick undergrowth. By the sound of it, it was something with horns. Nanny let the broomstick glide to a halt. There, she said, pushing aside a bracken frond. The long man. Casanunda peered under her elbow. Is that all? It's just an old burial mound. Three old burial mounds, said Nanny. Casanunda took in the overgrown landscape. Yes, I see them, he said. Two round ones and a long one. Well? The first time I saw them from the air, said Nanny, I nearly fell off the bloody broomstick for laughing. There was one of those pauses known as the delayed drop, while the dwarf worked out the topography of the situation. Then, blimey, said Casanunda, I thought the people who built burial mounds and earthworks and things were serious druids, and people like that, not... uh, Not people who drew on privy walls with 200,000 tons of earth, in a manner of speaking. Doesn't sound like you to be shocked by that sort of thing. She could have sworn the dwarf was blushing under his wig. Well, there's such a thing as style, said Casanunda. There's such a thing as subtlety. You don't just shout, I've got a great big tonker. Oh, it's a bit more complicated than that, said Nanny, pushing through the bushes. Here it's the landscape saying, I've got a great big tonker. That's a dwarf word, is it? Yes, it's a good word. Casanunda tried to untangle himself from a briar. Esme doesn't ever come up here, said Nanny from somewhere up ahead. She says it's bad enough about folk songs and maypoles and such like without the old scenery getting suggestive. Course, she went on, this was never intended as a woman's place. My great-grand said in the real old days the men used to come up for strange rites what no woman ever saw. Except your great-grandmother who hid in the bushes, said Casanunda. Nanny stopped dead. How did you know that? Let's just say I'm developing a bit of an insight into Og womanhood as well, Mrs. Og, said the dwarf. A thornbush had ripped his coat. She said they had just used to build sweat lodges and smell like a blacksmith's armpit and drink scumble and dance around the fire with horns on and piss in the trees any old owl, said Nanny. She said it was a bit sissy, to be honest, but I always reckon a man's got to be a man even if it is a sissy. What happened to your wig? I think it's on that tree back there. Still got the crowbar? Yes, Mrs. Og. Here we are, then. 
They arrived at the foot of the long mound. There were three large irregular stones there, forming a low cave. Nanny Og ducked under the lintel into the fusty and somewhat ammonia-scented darkness. "'About here it do,' she said. "'Got a match?' The sulphurous glow revealed a flat rock with a crude drawing scratched on it. Ochre had been rubbed into the lines. They showed a figure of an owl-eyed man wearing an animal skin and horns. In the flickering light he seemed to dance. There was a runic inscription underneath. "'Anyone ever worked out what that says?' said Casanunda. Nanny Og nodded. "'It's a variant of Ogham,' she said. "'Basically, it means I've got a great big tonka.' Ogham, said the dwarf, my family has been in these, how shall I put it, in these parts for a very long time, said Nanny. Knowing you is a real education, Mrs. Og, said Casanunda. Everyone says that. Just shove the crowbar down the side of the stone, will you? I've always wanted an excuse to go down there. What is down there? Well, it leads into Lancre Caves. They run everywhere, I've heard, even up to Copperhead. "'There's supposed to be an entrance in the castle, but I've never found it. "'But mainly they lead to the world of the elves.' "'I thought the dancers led to the world of the elves. "'This is the other world of the elves. "'I thought they only had one. "'They don't talk about this one. "'And you want to go into it?' "'Yes. "'You want to find elves?' "'That's right. Now, are you going to stand here all night, "'or are you going to crowbar that stone?' she gave him a nudge. "'There's gold down there, you know.' "'Oh, yes, thanks very much,' said Cassanander sarcastically. "'That species, that is, just because I am vertically disadvantaged, "'you're trying to get round me with gold, hmm? Hmm? "'Dwarfs are just a lot of appetites on legs, that's what you think, huh?' "'Nanny sighed.' Oh, all right, she said. Tell you what, when we get back home, I'll bake you some proper dwarf bread. How about that? Casanunda's face split into a disbelieving grin. Real dwarf bread? Yes. I reckon I've still got the recipe. Anyway, it's been weeks since I emptied out the cat box. There are many recipes for the flat, round loaves of Lancre dwarf bread, but the common aim of all of them is to make a field ration that is long-lasting, easily packed, and can disembowel the enemy if skimmed through the air hard enough. Edibility is a kind of optional extra. Most recipes are a closely guarded secret, apart from the gravel. Well, all the right. Cassanunda rammed one end of the crowbar under the stone and pulled on it with dwarfish strength. After a moment's resistance, the stone swung up. There were steps below, thick with earth and old roots. Nanny started down them without a look back and then realised that the dwarf wasn't following. What's the matter? Never liked dark and enclosed spaces much. What? You're a dwarf. Born a dwarf, born a dwarf. But I even get nervous when I'm hiding in wardrobes. That's a bit of a drawback in my line of work. Oh, don't be daft. I'm not scared. You're not me. Tell you what, I'll bake em with extra gravel. Oh, you're a temptress, Mrs. Og. And bring the torches. The caves were dry and warm. Casanunda trotted along after Nanny, anxious to stay in the torchlight. You haven't been down here before? No, but I know the way. After a while, Cassanunda began to feel better. The caves were better than wardrobes. For one thing, you weren't tripping over shoes all the time, and there probably wasn't much chance of a sword-wielding husband opening the door. In fact, he began to feel happy. The words rose unbidden into his head from somewhere in the back pocket of his jeans. Hi-ho! Hi-ho! Nanny Og grinned in the darkness. The tunnel opened into a cavern. The torchlight picked up the suggestion of distant walls. This it, said Casanunda, gripping the crowbar. No, this is something else. We know about this place. It's mythical. It's not real? Oh, it's real. And mythical. The torch flared. There were hundreds of dust-covered slabs ranged around the cavern in a spiral. At the centre of the spiral was a huge bell, suspended from a rope that disappeared into the darkness of the ceiling. Just under the hanging bell was one pile of silver coins and one pile of gold coins. "'Don't touch the money,' said Nanny. "'Here, watch this. 
My dad told me about this. It's a good trick. She reached out and tapped the bell very gently, causing a faint... Ting! Dust cascaded off the nearest slab. What Cassanunda had thought was just a carving sat up in a creaky way. It was an armed warrior. Since he'd sat up, he almost certainly was alive, but he looked as though he'd gone from life to rigor mortis without passing through death on the way. He focused deep-set eyes on Nanny Og. What bloody time do you call this, then? Not time yet, said Nanny. What did you go and bang the bell for? I don't know. I haven't had a winky of sleep for two hundred years. Some soddy always bangs the bell. Go away. The warrior lay back. It's some old king and his warriors, whispered Nanny as they hurried away. Some kind of magical sleep, I'm told. Some old wizard did it. They're supposed to wake up for some final battle when a wolf eats the sun. Those wizards always smoking something, said Casanunda. Could be. Go right here. Always go right. We're walking in a circle? A spiral. We're right under the long man now. No. That can't be right, said Casanunda. We climbed down a hole under the long man. Hold on. You mean we're in the place where we started and it's a different place? You're getting the hang of this. I can see that. They followed the spiral, which at length brought them to a door of sorts. The air was hotter here. Red light glowed from side passages. Two massive stones had been set up against a rock wall with a third stone across them. Animal skins hung across the crude entrance thus formed. Wisps of steam curled around them. They got put up at the same time as the dancers, said Nanny conversationally. Only the old ears vertical, so they only needed three. Might as well leave your crowbar here and take your boots off, if they've got nails in them. These boots were stitched by the finest shoemaker in Ankh-Morpork, said Casanunda, and one day I shall pay him. Nanny pulled aside the skins. Steam billowed out. There was a darkness inside, thick and hot as treacle and smelling of a fox's locker room. As Casanunda followed Nanny Og, he sensed unseen figures in the reeking air and heard the silence of murmured conversations suddenly curtailed. At one point he thought he saw a bowl of red-hot stones, and then a shadowy hand moved across them and upturned a ladle, hiding them in steam. This can't be inside the long man, he told himself. That's an earthworks. This is a long tent of skins. They can't both be the same thing. He realised he was dripping with sweat. Two torches became visible as the steam swirled. Their light hardly more than a red tint to the darkness, but they were enough to show a huge sprawled figure lying by another bowl of hot stones. It looked up. Antlers moved in the damp, clinging heat. Ah, Mrs. Og. The voice was like chocolate. Your lordship, said Nanny. I suppose it is too much to expect you to kneel. Yes, indeed, your honour, said Nanny, grinning. You know, Mrs. Og, you have a way of showing respect to your god that would make the average atheist green with envy, said the dark figure. It yawned. Thank you, your grace. No one even dances for me now. Is that too much to ask? Just as you say, your lordship. You witches don't believe in me any more. Right again, your hornishness. Ah, little Mrs. Og. And how, having got in here, do you possibly think you are going to get out? Said the slumped one. Because I have iron, said Nanny, her voice suddenly sharp. Of course you have not, little Mrs. Og. No iron can enter this realm. I have the iron that goes everywhere, said Nanny. She took her hand out of her apron pocket and held up a horseshoe. Casanunda heard scuffles around him as the hidden elves fought to get out of the way. More steam hissed up as a brazier of hot stones was overturned. Take it away! I'll take it away when I go, said Nanny. Now you listen to me. She's making trouble again. You've got to put a stop to it. Fair's fair, we're not having all the old trouble again. Why should I do that? You want her to be powerful, then? There was a snort. 
You can't ever rule again back in the world, said Nanny. There's too much music. There's too much iron. Iron rusts. Not the iron in the head, the king snorted. Nevertheless, even that, one day, one day, Nanny nodded. Yes, I'll drink to that. One day. Who knows? One day. Everyone needs one day. But it ain't today. Do you see? So you come on out and balance things up. Otherwise, this is what I'll do. I'll get them to dig into the long man with iron shovels, you see, and they'll say, why, it's just an old earthworks, and pensioned-off wizards and priests with nothing better to do will pick over the heaps and write dull old books about burial traditions and such like, and that'll be another iron nail in your coffin. And I'd be a little bit sorry about that, cos, you know, I've always had a soft spot for you, but I've got kiddies, you see. And they don't hide under the stairs because they're frit of the thunder. And they don't put milk out for the elves. And they don't hurry home because of the night. And before we go back to them dark old ways, I'll see you nailed. The words sliced through the air. The horned man stood up, and further up. His antlers touched the roof. Casanunda's mouth dropped open. So you see, said Nanny, subsiding, not today. One day, maybe. You just stay down here and sweat it out till one day. But not today. I will decide. Very good. You decide. And I'll be getting along. The horned man looked down at Casanunda. What are you staring at, dwarf? Nanny Og nudged Casanunda. Go on. Answer the nice gentleman. Casanunda swallowed. Blimey, he said. You don't half look like your picture. In a narrow little valley a few miles away, a party of elves had found a nest of young rabbits which, in conjunction with a nearby ant heap, kept them amused for a while. Even the meek and blind and voiceless have gods. Hearn the hunted, god of the chaste, crept through the bushes and wished fervently that gods had gods. The elves had their backs to him as they hunkered down to watch closely. Hearn the hunted crawled under a clump of bramble, tensed and sprang. He sank his teeth in an elf's calf until they met, and was flung away as it screamed and turned. He dropped and ran. That was the problem. He wasn't built to fight. There was not an ounce of predator in him. Attack and run. That was the only option. And elves could run faster. He bounced over logs and skidded through drifts of leaves, aware even as his vision fogged that elves were overtaking him on either side, pacing him, waiting for him to... The leaves exploded. The little god was briefly aware of a fanged shape, all arms and vengeance. Then there were a couple of dishevelled humans, one of them waving an iron bar around its head. Hearn didn't wait to see what happened next. He dived through the apparition's legs and ran on, but a distant war cry echoed in his long floppy ears. Why certainly I'll have your whelk. How do we do it? Volume! Nanny Og and Casanunda walked in silence back to the cave entrance and the flight of steps. Finally, as they stepped out into the night air, the dwarf said, Wow! It leaks out even up here, said Nanny. Very macko place, this. But I mean, good grief. He's brighter than she is. Or more lazy, said Nanny. He's going to wait it out. But he was... They can look like whatever they want to us, said Nanny. We see the shape we've given them. She let the rock drop back and dusted off her hands. But why should he want to stop her? Well, he's her husband, after all. He can't stand her. It's what you might call an open marriage. Wait what out, said Casanunda, looking around to see if there were any more elves. Oh, you know, said Nanny, waving a hand, all this iron and books and clockwork and universities and reading and such like, he reckons it'll all pass, see? And one day it'll all be over and people'll look up at the skyline at sunset, and there he'll be. Casanunda found himself turning to look at the sunset beyond the mound, half imagining the huge figure outlined against the afterglow. One day he'll be back, said Nanny softly, when even the iron in the head is rusty. Casanunda put his head on one side. 
You don't move around among different species for most of your life without learning to read a lot of their body language, especially since it's in such large print. You won't entirely be sorry, eh? he said. Me? I don't want them back. They're untrustworthy and cruel and arrogant parasites and we don't need them one bit. Bet you half a dollar? Nanny was suddenly flustered. Don't you look at me like that. Esme's right. Of course she's right. We don't want elves any more. Stands to reason. Esme's the short one, is she? Oh, no. Esme's the tall one with the nose. You know her. Right, yes. The short one is Magrat. She's a kind-hearted soul and a bit soft, wears flowers in her hair and believes in songs. I reckon she'd be off dancing with the elves quick as a winker. More doubts were entering Magrat's life. They concerned crossbows, for one thing. A crossbow is a very useful and usable weapon designed for speed and convenience and deadliness in the hands of the inexperienced, like a faster version of an out-of-code TV dinner. But it is designed to be used once by someone who has somewhere safe to duck while they reload. Otherwise, it's just so much metal and wood with a piece of string on it. Then there was the sword. Despite Sean's misgivings, Magrat did in theory know what you did with the sword. You tried to stick it into the enemy by a vigorous arm motion, and the enemy tried to stop you. She was a little uncertain about what happened next. She hoped you were allowed another go. She was also having doubts about her armour. The helmet and the breastplate were okay, but the rest of it was chainmail. And as Sean Og knew, chainmail from the point of view of an arrow can be thought of as a series of loosely connected holes. The rage was still there, the pure fury still gripped her at the core, but there was no getting away from the fact that the heart it gripped was surrounded by the rest of Magrat Garlic, spinster of this parish and likely to remain so. There were no elves visible in the town, but she could see where they had been. Doors hung off their hinges. The place looked as though it had been visited by Genghis Cohen, hence the term wholesale destruction. Now she was on the track that led to the stones. It was wider than it had been. The horses and carriages had churned it on the way up, and the fleeing people had turned it into a mire on the way down. She knew she was being watched, and it almost came as a relief when three elves stepped out from under the trees before she'd even lost sight of the castle. The middle one grinned. "'Good evening, girl,' it said. "'My name is Lord Lankin, and you will curtsy when you talk to me.' The tone suggested that there was absolutely no possibility that she would disobey. She felt her muscles strain to comply. Queen Unchi wouldn't have obeyed. "'I happen to be practically the Queen,' she said. It was the first time she'd looked an elf in the face when she was in any condition to notice details. This one was currently wearing high cheekbones and hair tied in a ponytail. It wore odds and ends of rags and lace and fur, confident in the knowledge that anything would look good on an elf.' It wrinkled its perfect nose at her. "'There is only one queen in Lancre,' it said, "'and you are most definitely not her.' Magrat tried to concentrate. "'Where is she, then?' she said. The other two raised their bows. "'You are looking for the queen? "'Then we will take you to her,' Lankin stated. "'And, lady, should you be inclined to make use of that nasty iron bow, "'there are more archers hidden in the trees.' There was indeed a rustling in the trees on one side of the track, but it was followed by a thump. The elves looked disconcerted. "'Get out of my way,' said Magrat. "'I think you have a very wrong idea,' said the elf. Its smile widened, but vanished when there was another sylvan crash from the other side of the track. "'We felt you coming all the way up the track.' said the elf. The brave girl off to rescue her lover. Oh, the romance. Take her. A shadow rose up behind the two armed elves, took a head in either hand and banged them together. The shadow stepped forward over their bodies and as Lankin turned, caught it with one round-arm punch that picked it up and slammed it into a tree. Magrat drew her sword. Whatever this was, it looked worse than elves. It was muddy and hairy and almost troll-like in its build, and it reached out for the bridle with an arm that seemed to extend forever. She raised the sword. Ook! Put the sword down, please, miss. The voice came from somewhere behind her, but it sounded human and worried. Elves never sounded worried. Who are you? she said, without turning round. The monster in front of her gave her a big yellow-toothed grin. Um, 
I'm Ponder Stibbons, a wizard, and mm, he's a wizard too. He's got no clothes on. I could get him to have a bath if you like, said Ponder, slightly hysterically. He always puts on an old green dressing gown when he's had a bath. Magrat relaxed a bit. No one who sounded like that could be much of a threat, except to themselves. Whose side are you on, Mr. Wizard? Um, how many are there? Ook? When I get off this horse, said Magrat, it'll bolt. So can you ask your friend to let go of the bridle? He'll be hurt. Ook? Um, probably not. Magrat slid off. The horse, relieved of the presence of iron, bolted for about two yards. Ook! The horse was struggling to get back on its feet. Magrat blinked. Um, he's just a bit annoyed at the moment, said Ponder. One of the elves shot him with an arrow. But they do that to control people. Um, mm, he's not a person. Mook. Genetically, I mean. Magrat had met wizards before. Occasionally one visited Lankra, although they didn't stay very long. There was something about the presence of Granny Weatherwax that made them move on. They didn't look like Ponder Stibbons. He'd lost most of his robe, and of his hat only the brim remained. Most of his face was covered in mud, and there was a multicoloured bruise over one eye. Did they do that to you? Well, the mud and the torn clothes is just from, you know, the forest, and we've run into... Ooh! Over uh, elves a few times, but this is when the librarian hit me. Ook! Thank goodness, Ponder added. Knocked me cold. Otherwise I'd be like the others. A foreboding of a conversation to come swept over Magrat. What others? she snapped. Are you alone? What others? Have you any idea what's been happening? Magrat thought about the castle and the town. I might be able to hazard a guess, she said. Ponder shook his head. It's worse than that, he said. What others? said Magrat. I think there's definitely been a cross-continuum breakthrough, and I'm sure there's a difference in energy levels. But what others? Magrat insisted. Ponder Stibbons glanced nervously at the surrounding forest. Let's get off the path. There's a lot more elves back there. Ponder disappeared into the undergrowth. Magrat followed him and found a second wizard propped against a tree like a ladder. He had a huge smile creasing his face. The bursa, said Ponder. I think we may have overdone the dried frog pills a bit. He raised his voice. How are you doing, sir? Uh, why, I'll, I'll have a little of the roast weasel, if you would be so good, said the bursa, beaming happily at nothing. Why has he gone so stiff? said Magrat. We think it's some kind of side effect, said Ponder. Can't you do anything about it? What, and have nothing to cross streams on? Call again tomorrow, Baker, and we'll have a crusty one, said the bursar. Besides, he seems quite happy, said Ponder. Are you a warrior, miss? What? said Magrat. Well, I mean, the armour and everything. Magrat looked down. She was still holding the sword. The helmet kept falling over her eyes, but she'd padded it a bit with a scrap of wedding dress. I, er, uh, yes, yes, that's right, that's what I am, she said. Absolutely, yes. Here for the wedding, I expect, like us. Um, that's right, definitely here for the wedding, that's true. She changed her grip on the sword. Now, tell me what happened, she said, paying particular attention to what happened to the others. Well... Ponder absent-mindedly picked up a corner of his torn robe and began to screw it up in his fingers. We all went to see this entertainment, you see, a play, you know, acting. And and it was very funny. Uh, there were all these yokels in their big boots and everything, straw wigs and everything, clumping around pretending to be lords and ladies and everything, and, and, and getting it all wrong. It was very funny. The bursa laughed at them a lot. Mind you, he's been laughing at trees and rocks too. But everyone was having fun. And then, and, and, and then, I want to know everything, said Magrat. Well, well, then there was this bit I can't really remember. It was something to do with the acting, I think. I mean, suddenly, suddenly it all seemed real. Do you know what I mean? No. There was this chap with a red nose and bandy legs, and he was playing the Queen of the Fairies or something, and suddenly he was still him, but, but everything felt... And everything around me just vanished. There were just the actors, and there was this hill, 
I mean, they must have been good, because I really believed... I, I think at some point I remember someone asking us to clap our hands, and everyone was looking very strange, and there was this singing, and it was wonderful, and... and... Ooh! Oh, and then the librarian hit me, said Ponder simply. Why? Best if he tells it in his own words, said Ponder. Cough, Julia, over the bender, said the bursar. I didn't understand what the librarian said, said Magrat. Um, we were all present at an interdimensional rip, said Ponder, caused by belief. The play was the last little thing that opened it up. There must have been a very delicate area of instability very close. It's hard to describe, but if you had a rubber sheet and some lead weights, I could demonstrate. You're trying to tell me those things exist because people believe in them? Oh, no, no. I imagine they exist anyway. They're here because people believe in them here. Ooh. He ran off with us. They shot an arrow at him. But it just made him itch. Normally he's as gentle as a lamb. Really, he is. But he can't abide elves. They smell wrong to him. The librarian flared his nostrils. Magrat didn't know much about jungles, but she thought about apes in the trees smelling the rank of the tiger. Apes never admired the sleek of the fur and the burn of the eye because they were too well aware of the teeth of the mouth. Yes, she said, I expect they would. Dwarfs and trolls hate them too, but I think they don't hate them as much as I do. You can't fight them all, said Ponder. They're swarming like bees up there. There's flying ones too. The librarian says they made people get fallen trees and things and, and push those, you know, those stones down. There were some stones on the hill. They attacked them. Don't know why. Did you see any witches at the entertainment? said Magrat. Uh, witches, um, witches, muttered Ponder. You couldn't have missed them, said Magrat. There'd be a thin one glaring at everything and a small fat one cracking nuts and laughing a lot. And they'd be talking to each other very loudly. And they'd both have tall pointy hats. Uh, can't say I noticed them, said Ponder. Then they couldn't have been there, said Magrat. Being noticed is what being a witch is all about. She was about to add that she'd never been good at it, but didn't. Instead, she said, I'm going on up there. You'll need an army, miss. I mean, you'd have been in trouble just now if the librarian hadn't been up in the trees. But I haven't got an army, so I'm going to have to try by myself, aren't I? This time, Magrat managed to spur the horse into a gallop. Ponder watched her go. You know... Folk songs have got a lot to answer for, he said to the night air. Ooh, ooh, ooh. She's going to get utterly killed. Ooh. Hello, Mr. Flowerpot. Uh, two pints of eels, if you'd be so good. Of course, it could be her destiny, or one of those sort of things. Ooh. Millennium Hand and Shrimp. Ponder Stibbons looked embarrassed. Anyone want to follow her? Ooh. Whoops, there he goes with his big clock. Was that a yes? Ooh. Not yours, his. Flobbly wobbly, here comes our jelly. I think that probably counts as a yes, said Ponder reluctantly. Ooh. I've got a lovely new vest. But look, said Ponder, the graveyards are full of people who rushed in bravely but unwisely. Ooh. What did he say? said the bursar, passing briefly through reality on his way somewhere else. I think he said, sooner or later the graveyards are full of everybody, said Ponder. Oh, blast. Come on. Yes, indeedy, said the bursar. Hands up the mittens, Mr. Boson. Oh, shut up. Magrat dismounted and let the horse go. She knew she was near the dancers now. Coloured light flickered in the sky. She wished she could go home. The air was colder here, far too cold for a midsummer night. As she plodded onward, flakes of snow swirled in the breeze and turned to rain. Ridcully materialised inside the castle, and then clung onto a pillar for support until he got his breath back. Transmigration always made blue spots appear in front of his eyes. No one noticed him. The castle was in turmoil. Not everyone had run home. 
Armies had marched across Lankra many times over the last few thousand years, and the recollection of the castle's thick, safe walls had been practically engraved in folk memory. Run to the castle! And now it held most of the little country's population. Ridcully blinked. People were milling around and being harangued by a small young man in loose-fitting chainmail and one arm in a sling, who seemed to be the only person with any grip on things. When he was certain he could walk straight, Ridcully headed towards him. Uh, "'What's going on, young...?' he began, and then stopped. Sean Og looked around. "'The scheming minx,' said Ridcully to the air in general. "'Oh, go back and get it then,' she said, "'and I fell right for it. "'Even if I could cut the mustard again, I don't know where we were.' "'Sir,' said Sean. Ridcully shook himself. "'What's happening?' he said. "'I don't know,' said Sean, who was almost in tears. "'I think we're being attacked by elves. "'Nothing anyone's telling me is making any sense. "'Somehow they arrived during the entertainment or something.' "'Ridcully looked around at the frightened, bewildered people. "'And Miss Magrat's gone out to fight them. "'Alone!' "'Ridcully looked perplexed. "'Who's Miss Magrat? "'She's going to be Queen, the Bride. "'You know, Magrat Garlic!' Ridcully's mind could digest one fact at a time. Uh, what's she gone out for? They captured the king. Uh, did you know they've got Esme Weatherwax as well? What, Granny Weatherwax? I came back to rescue her, said Ridcully, and then realised this sounded either nonsense or cowardly. Sean was too upset to notice. I just hope they're not collecting witches, he said. They'll need our mum to get the complete set. They ain't got me, then said Nanny Og behind him. Mum, how'd you get in? Broomstick. You'd better get some people with bows up on the roof. I came down that way, so can others. What are we going to do, Mum? There's bands of elves all over the place, said Nanny, and there's a big glow over the dancers. We must attack them, shouted Casanunda. Give them a taste of cold steel. Good man, that dwarf, said Ridcully. That's right, I'll, I'll get my crossbow. "'There's too many of them,' said Nanny flatly. "'Granny and Miss Magrat are out there, Mum,' said Sean. "'Miss Magrat came over all strange and put on armour "'and went out to fight all of them.' "'But the hills are crawling with elves,' said Nanny. "'It's a double helping of elves with extra devils. "'Certain death.' "'It's, it's certain death anyway,' said Ridcully. "'That's the thing about death. Certainty.' "'We'd have no chance at all,' said Nanny.' "'Actually, uh, we'd have one chance,' said Ridcully. "'I don't understand all this continue in you, in you, in you, in you stuff, "'but uh, from what young Stibblin says, "'it means that everything has to happen somewhere, do you see? "'So that means it could happen here, "'even if it's a million to one chance, ma'am.' "'That's all very well,' said Nanny. "'But what you're saying is, for every Mr Ridcully that survives tonight's work, "'999,999 are going to get killed?' "'Yes, uh, but I'm not bothered about those other buggers,' said Ridcully. "'They can look after themselves. Serve them right for not inviting me to their weddings.' "'What?' "'Uh, nothing.' Sean was hopping from one foot to the other. "'We ought to be fighting a mum.' "'Look at everyone,' said Nanny. "'They're dog-tired and wet and confused. That's not an army.' "'Mum, mum, mum!' "'What?' "'I'll persike them up, mum.' That's what you have to do before troops go into battle, Mum. I read about that in books. You can take a rabble of thingy and make the right kind of speech and psych them up and turn them into a terrible fighting force, Mum. They look terrible anyway. I mean, terrible like fierce, Mum. Nanny Og looked at the hundred or so Lankra subjects. The thought of them managing to fight anyone at all took some getting used to. "'You've been studying this, Sean?' she inquired. "'I've got five years' worth of bows and ammo, Mum,' said Sean reproachfully. "'Well, give it a try, then, if you think it'll work.' Trembling with excitement, Sean climbed onto a table, drew his sword with his good hand, and banged it on planks until people were silent. He made a speech. He pointed out that their king had been captured, and their prospective queen had gone out to save him. He pointed out their responsibility as loyal subjects.' He pointed out that other people currently not here but at home hiding under the bed would, after the glorious victory, wish they'd been there too instead of under the aforesaid bed which they were hiding under. You know, the bed he'd just mentioned. In fact, it was better 
that there were so few here to face the enemy, because that meant that there would be a higher percentage of honour per surviving head. He used the word glory three times. He said that in times to come, people would look back on this day, whatever the date was, and proudly show their scars, at least those who'd survived would show their scars, and be very proud, and probably have drink sport for them. He advised people to imitate the action of the Lancre reciprocating fox, and stiffen some sinews while leaving them flexible enough so they could move their arms and legs. In fact, probably it'd be better to relax them a bit now, and stiffen them properly when the time came. He suggested that Lancre expected everyone to do their duty, and, um, um, please. The silence that followed was broken by Nanny Og, who said, They're probably considering it a bit, Sean. Why don't you take Mr. Wizardier up to his room and help him with his crossbow? She nodded meaningfully in the direction of the stairs. Sean wavered, but not for long. He'd seen the glint in his mother's eyes. When he'd gone, Nanny climbed up on the same table. Well, she said, it's like this. If you go out there, you may have to face elves. But if you stops here, you definitely have to face me. Now, elves is worse than me, I'll admit. But I'm persistent. Weaver put up a tentative hand. Please, Mrs. Og. Yes, Weaver. What exactly is the action of the reciprocating fox? Nanny scratched her ear. As I recall, she said, its back legs go like this, but its front legs go like this. No, 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 said Quarney, the storekeeper. It's its tail that goes like that. Its legs go like this. That's not reciprocating, that's just oscillating, said someone. You're thinking of the ring-tailed ocelot. Nanny nodded. That's settled, then, she said. Hold on, I'm not sure. Yes, Mr. Quarney? Oh, well, good, good, said Nanny, as Sean reappeared. They was just saying, our Sean, how they were swayed by your speech. Really psyched up. Cure! They're ready to follow you into the jaws of hell itself, I expect, said Nanny. Someone put on their hand. Are you coming too, Mrs. Ogg? I'll just, I'll just stroll along behind, said Nanny. Oh, well, maybe as far as the jaws of hell, then. Amazing, said Casanunda to Nanny, as the crowd filed reluctantly towards the armoury. You've just got to know how to deal with people. They'll follow where an Og leads. Not exactly, said Nanny. But if they know what's good for them, they'll go where an Og follows. Magrat stepped out from under the trees, and the moorland lay ahead of her. A whirlpool of cloud swirled over the dancers, or at least over the place where the dancers had been. She could make out one or two stones by the flickering light, lying on their side or rolled down the slope of the hill. The hill itself glowed. Something was wrong with the landscape. It curved where it shouldn't curve. Distances weren't right. Magrat remembered a woodcut shoved in as a place marker in one of her old books. It showed the face of an old crone... But if you stared at it, you saw it was also the head of a young woman. A nose became a neck, an eyebrow became a necklace. The images seesawed back and forth, and like everyone else, she'd squinted herself silly trying to see them both at the same time. The landscape was doing pretty much the same thing. What was a hill was also, at the same time, a vast snowbound panorama. Lancre and the Land of the Elves were trying to occupy the same space. The intrusive country wasn't having it all its own way. Lancre was fighting back. There was a circle of tents just on the cusp of the warring landscapes, like a beachhead on an alien shore. They were brightly coloured. Everything about the elves was beautiful, until the image tilted and you saw it from the other side. Something was happening. Several elves were on horseback, and more horses were being led between the tents. It looked as though they were breaking camp. The Queen sat on a makeshift throne in her tent. She sat with her elbow resting on one arm of the throne and her fingers curling pensively around her mouth. There were other elves seated in a semicircle, except that seated was a barely satisfactory word. They lounged. Elves could make themselves at home on a wire. And here there was more lace and velvet and fewer feathers. Although it was hard to know if it meant that these were aristocrats, elves seemed to wear whatever they felt like wearing, confident of looking absolutely stunning. 
the monks of Cool, whose tiny and exclusive monastery is hidden in a really cool and laid-back valley in the lower ramtops, have a passing-out test for a novice. He is taken into a room full of all types of clothing, and asked, Yo, my son, which of these is the most stylish thing to wear? And the correct answer is, Hey, whatever I select. Cool, but not necessarily up to date. Every one of them watched the Queen, and was a mirror of her moods. When she smiled, they smiled. When she said something she thought was amusing, they laughed. Currently, the object of her attention was Granny Weatherwax. "'What is happening, old woman?' she said. "'It ain't easy, is it?' said Granny. "'Thought it would be easy, didn't you? "'You've done some magic, haven't you? "'Something is fighting us.' "'No magic,' said Granny. "'No magic at all. "'It's just that you've been away too long. "'Things change. "'The land belongs to humans now.' "'That can't be the case,' said the Queen. "'Humans take, they plough with iron, they ravage the land. "'Some do, I'll grant you that. "'Others put back more than they take. "'They put back love. "'They've got soil in their bones. "'They tell the land what it is.' That's what humans are for. Without humans, Lanka would just be a bit of ground with green bits on it. They wouldn't even know they're trees. We're all down here together, madam. Us and the land. It's not just land anymore, it's a country. It's like a horse that's been broken and shod, or a dog that's been tamed. Every time people put a plough in the soil or planted a seed, they took the land further away from you, said Granny. Things change. Verence sat beside the Queen. His pupils were tiny pinpoints. He smiled faintly, permanently, in a way very reminiscent of the bursar. "'Ah, but when we are married,' said the Queen, "'the land must accept me, by your own rules. I know how it works. There's more to being a king than wearing a crown. The king and the land are one, the king and the queen are one, and I shall be queen.' She smiled at Granny. There was an elf on either side of her, and, Granny knew, at least one behind her. Elves were not given to introspection. If she moved without permission, she'd die. "'What you shall be is something I have yet to decide,' said the Queen. End of CD 7